Have you ever wondered how people pray for you? Have you ever like, wanted to be a fly on the wall in a room of somebody who loves you dearly and to hear how they pray for you and what they say? Or have you ever wanted to walk around and follow one of our heroes in the faith and hear them pray in secret? Maybe somebody like Leonard Ravenhill or George Whitfield. Or have you ever wanted, wanted to follow Jonathan Edwards in the meadows or in the woods as he's praying with the Father alone? And to hear what these people are saying, to hear what these brothers and sisters in Christ say when they pray. Have you ever wanted to hear those prayers? I think I would. And the interesting thing about prayer is that it brings us into somebody's heart especially secret prayer. What is somebody praying for when they're alone and nobody sees them, when nobody hears them, maybe even the lights are off and they're in their closet, like Jesus said, go in your closet where nobody sees you or hears you. What are they praying for? And and in that space, you really would see somebody's heart. You really would see what they have deemed as their priorities in life. And really, you would see their theology on display. I mean, even if you're in a, in a group or a small group or somewhere and you start to hear somebody pray, you start to pick up on some of their theology and how they pray and some of the things they emphasize. And you can certainly see what people believe by how they pray. And even Jesus' prayers in the Bible are very fascinating, at least to me. Because it's, again, he's in secret, but yet... By the power of the Spirit, we have these prayers documented and we get to see what he was praying. And we get to see his heart and his will and his, his theology in a sense. We get to see the things that he prioritized. And so as we're in Colossians 1, just the historical context is a refresher. The Colossian church has recently been assaulted by a false gospel, false teachers. And their church planner, their founder, Epaphras, Deems it is such a big issue that he needs to travel over a thousand miles from what would be modern day Turkey today all the way over to Rome to tell Paul. And so Paul is in prison in Rome. We're looking at right around 60 to 61 AD. And Epaphras tells Paul about these false teachers and this false gospel that is plaguing the church. And then Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to strengthen them and ground them in their faith. And so as we went through uh, verses 1 through 8 two weeks ago, we saw this heavy, dense truth of the gospel, the content of the gospel, that it helps us and understand the grace of God and truth. And now we're going to be moving into another heavy aspect of our faith, really the will of God for our life. And so we are going to see Paul's prayer for the Colossians here. We kind of get an inside look at what his priorities are, what his heart is for this church, and really what his heart is and God's heart is for us and our Christian walks. So, God's will for your life. Have you ever asked that question before? I think everybody has. Everybody's asked that question. What is God's will for my life? I mean, if you go to any Christian conference and there's a list of seminars there's almost always one that is, what's God's will for your life? Maybe phrased a different way, but it, it, everybody's asking this question. 
I want to know what God's will is for my life. If I asked you that question today, would you be able to give an answer? And would you be confident in that answer of what God's will is for your life? So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 14. And we're going to see that it is really about God's will for the Colossians' life. Let's read our text. Colossians 1, verse 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One interesting thing about this text, quickly, is that it is one continuous sentence in the Greek. And we can kind of see that by the semicolons and, and colons and things like that, but... This really is one big unit on the will of God for your life. And so the way that we're going to structure this right now is we're going to work very linearly. I know two weeks ago we kind of worked backwards and it was a little confusing. We're going to be working much more systematically through this, uh, through this passage, really word by word, verse by verse. And we're really going to build a foundation first. A better, lay the bedrock, lay the foundation for God's will for your life. And then we're going to, in a sense, if you can visualize this, we're going to put four pillars on top of this bedrock, on top of this foundation, on what God's will is for you. And so this bedrock is really going to be built by verses 9 through half of 10. And so we're going to spend some time, in a sense, as kind of an introduction, a little bit more of an in-depth introduction on this topic and on this passage. And then in the rest of the verse will really get into our meat. So let's look again at verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, And so from the day we heard, heard about what? Heard about that they came to Christ through the gospel message, that it was an effectual call. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner, manner worthy of the Lord. So let's first look at this phrase, knowledge of God's will. Paul wants them to be filled with this knowledge of his will. Well, filled, what, is it, what does filled really mean? Well, really, it connotates this idea that you are being filled by God, not necessarily filling yourself, but you are being filled by God in such a way that you are being controlled by God. We are not filling ourselves we are being filled by God. Filled with what? Well, filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, this word knowledge is, is hard to see in the English, but if you were to have the Greek text before you, you would see that it's the same word that we saw two weeks ago with the word understood in verse 6. So remember last or two weeks ago, we talked about how the gospel is content that must be heard, learned, and understood. Well, that Word understood is the same word here for knowledge. And that should really make sense. I mean, they fit. If you know something, you understand it. And if you understand something, you know it. So, we know 
as we saw last week, that the gospel comes to us with power and salvation. When it does come to us with power and salvation, we understand the grace of God and truth. But we do not stop there. Our knowledge of God and his will continues to progress over time. And that's what we will see. So now let's actually look a little bit more at this word knowledge here. The most common Greek word for knowledge or know is gnosis. But this word here is not that word. It's epigenosis. There's a preposition added to it. And what that really means is that it's an intensified knowledge. It's a deeper knowledge. It's a thorough knowledge. So we are to be filled with this deep, thorough knowledge. It really is a mastery type knowledge. And you might hear someone say, at least I've been asked, I think everybody's been asked, what do you know about cars? And (laughs) I don't know much about cars. Uh, I know that I need to get an oil change every 3,000 miles. Uh, I think I can probably change a battery. Um, <laughs> I know that you got to put some blinker fluid in. No, just <laughs> but I really don't have a knowledge of cars at all. I don't certainly have a knowledge where you could fix a car. I could not fix a car. Now, this is not the knowledge that we're talking about here. What we see here is a knowledge where you could be a mechanic. You know the car inside and out. You know how to fix it. You know how to diagnose an issue. It's a mastery knowledge. Deep, thorough. So, this knowledge, as we talked about last, well, I keep saying last week, two weeks ago now, it comes from understanding content. And remember, I I talked about the Pythagorean theorem. You know, live out the Pythagorean theorem. Well, you can't live out the Pythagorean theorem. You have to Share the Pythagorean theorem. You have to tell somebody that it's A squared plus B squared equals C squared. You have to share the content. So this knowledge comes from understanding content. Well, what is this content that we're understanding? Paul's telling us to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What is this content? What is this knowledge of God's will? It is doctrine and theology. It is the truths of Scripture and the promises of God, it is objective. It is absolute. It is authoritative. It is God's word. That is the knowledge that we are to be filled up with. The scriptures. And again, doctrine and theology, I say these words, what does that really mean? Well, doctrine really is what the Bible says about something, a topic, a position. You have the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of atonement. What does the Bible say? What are the true things that the Bible says about how we are saved? That is the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of atonement. Well, what about marriage? We would would get a position out of the scriptures on marriage, and we would call that the doctrine of marriage. And what we would find is that marriage is between one man and one woman as an aspect to that doctrine. So that really is what doctrine is, very simplistically. And then we have doctrines that are woven together consistently and coherently to create a theology. And that's just one way you can really think about that. So this content that Paul wants us and is praying for us to understand is the scriptures, is doctrine, is theology, is the promises of God given to us in the Bible. Now, This is completely opposed and contradictory to our current postmodern moment where we say that there really is no absolutes 
There really is nothing objective. Language is just a social construct that humans have invented to keep power is really how they define it. And thus, if it's just a social construct and there's no real meaning behind the words that I'm saying, then I, as the listener, can just interpret somebody's words or somebody's writing however I want. However I want. Indeed, if you take this postmodern ideology to the scriptures, you can read the scriptures. And because it's just a socially constructed language, then I can really interpret the Bible however I want. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about an absolute, objective truth that God has revealed to us, that God is giving to us. That is the knowledge that we need to gain. So let me just boil it down and make it crystal clear. And this is what we see in our text. Let's look back at it again. Verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we see that we gain this knowledge. Why? For what purpose? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. There is where we get our bedrock for the will of God for your life. God's will for your life is that you glorify him, that you please him, that you please him. And it comes from an understanding of doctrine. It comes from an understanding of the Bible. Now, it's probably important to say, though, that what Paul is talking about here, this will of God, is not some superficial just you know, will of God stuff that we like to think about. Like, well, is it God's will that I marry so-and-so or buy this car or get this job or do this or do that? That is not the will of God revealed to us in Scripture. I can't open up the Bible and go, oh, it looks like I'm supposed to marry this person. Oh, it looks like I'm supposed to move to this city. And in hindsight, we can look back and go, okay, it was the will of God that I was supposed to marry so-and-so or do this or do that. But that is not the will of God that is being taught here. It is not this will of God that we see when we look back in our lives. And indeed, this will of God is supposed to lead us into holy living. And that's where we really get to this phrase in spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does this mean? Well, spiritual wisdom and understanding, understanding and wisdom, um, there really are synonymous terms. But when we put them together, what we really realize is that Paul wants the Colossians to understand doctrine and theology so in-depthly that they have the wisdom and the understanding to know how to apply it to their lives. To know how it should affect their behavior. To know how it should affect their decisions. To know how it should affect their character. That is the meaning of spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as a preface, that is really this this broad introduction, laying this foundation for God's will for your life. We have to know the scriptures so that we can glorify him and please him. And ultimately, God's will for your life is to glorify him. And now from that, we'll get to the rest of our text. And what we're going to really look at is we're going to look at four pillars of God's will for your life. Four pillars 
of God's will for your life. And these pillars, again, if you can imagine it, are being built up on this foundation of glorifying God. So each of these pillars does indeed glorify God as we look at them. So pillar number one. God's will is that you bear fruit. Pillar number one. God's will is that you bear fruit. So look with me at verse 10 again. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Here we go. Bearing fruit in every good work. And we're just going to stop there. Said another way, God's will for your life is that you do good works. Consider with me John chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Remember again this this foundation that we've laid to glorify God. Well, here we see it perfectly. Jesus says, this is how you glorify God, that you bear much fruit. And not only that, but he says that this is the proof that you are my disciple. This is God's will for you, that you bear fruit, you glorify God, and you so prove to be a disciple of Christ. Well, that should bring up a natural question, at least it does in me. How do we bear this fruit? How do you bear this fruit? And how are you prepared to bear this fruit? That should be the question. And immediately it reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what Paul says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, It's God's will that we bear fruit and do these good works. Well, how do I do this? How do I get equipped to do this? Okay, where do I go? What school should I go to? How do I do this? Paul tells us right here. It's the scriptures. All scripture. Not just an aspect of it, but all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for these things and eventually to make us complete Equipped for every good work. Everything that we do in this life as a Christian, every single good work that we will do, we are equipped to do it by the word of God. And this is a very, very important thing to understand in today's cultural context because we are being told that we need these other things to equip us or to make us able to do these good works. And the perfect example of this is critical race theory. We are told that we need critical race theory in order to see racial racial reconciliation happen in our world. But critical race theory isn't found in the scriptures. And racial reconciliation and the killing of the sin of hatred of man is a good thing and a good work. How are we equipped for that? The scriptures and only the scriptures. Now, this is exactly what we should expect. If our glorifying of God rests on our knowledge of Scripture, then it makes sense that the thing that equips us for every good work is all of Scripture. And that is why at Harvest Plains Church, following First Baptist Church, we practice expository preaching. Why? Because we know that we need all of Scripture to make us complete, ready for every good work, which is God's will for our life. We know that we need doctrine, 
And the most efficient way that we can get this doctrine is by systematically preaching through whole books of the Bible. By preaching the whole counsel of God. We need it. And expository preaching is how we get it in the most efficient, well-rounded way. We need a well-rounded meal and expository preaching gives it to us. And so the application for you should be obvious. You should study your Bible as much as you can and you should get around people who know their Bibles. You really should. And I think that is a very important thing for many lay people in churches today is they're willing to sit in churches that don't really feed them the word of God, but they need it. They need it. And so we need to be around people who can teach us it. We need to be around men who have been equipped, equipped and called by God to be able to say, this is what this says to us. This is what this means. It's not subjective. It's not postmodern. It's God's very word to us. So we need to get around people who love their Bibles. Now, it's a necessary point to say that these good works that God wants us to do and that glorify him, they don't merit salvation. Paul is talking to Christians, people who've already been saved by God's grace through faith. And now he says, do good works. So obviously every false religion in the world makes works the way you merit salvation, including Catholicism, including Catholicism. Every false religion, Mormonism, even the ones that try to make it seem like they're Christian, if you look into them, every single one of them, salvation is by works. Salvation is by works. But this is not what Paul's saying at all. He's not saying that we work our way to salvation. He's saying that works are the fruit of salvation. Not the root, the fruit. I've heard somebody say it like that before. Not the root, the fruit. Every other religion makes them the root. Works are the fruit and the evidence of our salvation. Now, what are these works? I'm sure you're maybe wondering. I know I've wondered before, okay, I'm supposed to do good works. Well, what are these good works? Well, there's tons of them. I'll just give you a few. Killing sin is a good work. Mortifying your flesh, putting to death the desires of the flesh. And what is the fruit then of this good work of killing sin? The fruit is holiness. Godliness, a character change. That's why we see in Galatians 5 that the fruits of the Spirit are these character things. Love, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control. I think I got all of them. So that is a work, killing sin, and then the fruit of that is holiness and character change. Well, another good work is certainly evangelism. And what's the fruit of evangelism? Well, if you were to look at John 15, we would see that the fruit of evangelism is converts, people who come to Christ. So we are to do the good work of evangelism, serving, really, in any way. We all have been given a package or a spiritual gift or however you want to think about it, and we are to serve the body with those spiritual gifts. Those are good works. Preaching and teaching certainly are good works. Hospitality, caring for the needy, and so on and so on and so on and so on. And all of those good works, if the person is to do them, they are equipped by the word of God. That is key. We have to understand this. So that brings us right into our second pillar of God's will for your life. 
And that is that God's will is that you increase in knowledge. So we really don't have to go much further than where we already were. We're still in verse 10. I'll read verse 10 again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, here we have it, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So again, pillar number two of God's will for your life is that God's will is that you increase in knowledge. Now, this is rather obvious. This is what we've been really talking about so far. The whole thrust of this text. Our glorifying of God rests on knowing God. And here's the deal. We do not perfectly know God yet. Would anybody in here say they have a perfect knowledge of God? Where there's no sin in the way, no wrong belief or understanding. I mean, that's our hope. In a day when we will be glorified and we will have no more sin hindering us. So obviously that would imply that God's will for our lives right now before we're glorified is that we grow in this knowledge of God. That we grow and we increase in knowledge. Consider with me 1 Peter 2, 2 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we should long for this pure spiritual milk. What is this? Oh, it's the word of God. Of course. It's scripture. It's doctrine. It's theology. Crave it. Eat it. Long for it. Drink it so that you may grow and mature. And be made holy. Now, when you get married, I haven't been married. Some, most of think everybody in here is married. Uh, <laughs> uh, when you get married, you have a knowledge of your spouse. We're praying for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> the kids and me. <laughs> but we, <laughs> when you get married, you obviously have a knowledge of your spouse at the marriage. You know them. But you don't know everything about them. And I've even heard some people say that, man, I just, I'm prolonging engagement or marriage because I just want to get to know this person more. I want to see them in every single situation so I know how they would act. And I go, well, then you're never going to get married because there's no way that you can get an exhaustive knowledge of somebody before you make that covenant before God. So obviously... At our conversion, we have a knowledge of God. That's what the gospel gives us. We know and understand the grace of God and truth. We, we have been told about this, this uh, inheritance in heaven for us. If you remember from two weeks ago, we understand that we're sinners and God is holy and that there's salvation by no other way. So we have a knowledge, but we don't have an exhaustive knowledge. And we don't have a deep knowledge, so we grow in this deep knowledge. Just as you, when you get married now, as you're spending time with your new spouse, you get to know them deeper and deeper and deeper. And the hope is, is that this knowledge would continue to foster deeper intimacy and deeper love for each other. That's what this knowledge does. It fosters intimacy and love. So, we want to get to know our spouses, obviously. Now, I've heard of people who say that, man, I don't really think I need doctrine, and I don't really like doctrine, but I love God so much. I love Him so much. And that seems to be a little bit of a dilemma in my mind. 
okay, if we need doctrine and we need this knowledge of God's will in order to glorify God, in order to do these things, and you don't think you need doctrine, then I don't know how genuine your love really is to God or how much, how accurate your statement is that you love God so much. And I think a lot of young Christians are just, they haven't been around somebody who's willing to tell them how, they, how much they need doctrine. And I see that a lot. They just don't know. They don't even know what doctrine really is. They really don't know how important the scriptures truly are. But then there's also evidence maybe though that maybe they really truly aren't a Christian. A love for the Bible and a love for the truth of the Bible is so foundational to the Christian life that when people try to separate these things, it just doesn't make sense. And it's like this. I'll go back to a marriage analogy. It's like a wife pouring out her heart for, to her husband, telling him about the things that she loves, telling, her, telling him about her passions and what makes her happy and what makes her sad and, and telling him about her thoughts and her beliefs and telling him about the things that he does that she appreciates and telling him about the things that he does that she doesn't appreciate that kind of make her mad. And then he says to her, Honey, I don't care about all that stuff. I just want to love you. I love you. Why don't you believe me that I love you? Don't you just believe me when I say I love you? And he's totally throwing everything to the side, all these things that she's told him. And she's just supposed to accept this reality that, well, he said he loves me. And we know that's not how it is. A true love manifests itself in action and behavior. And so he would listen to her. He would take into account the things that she has told him. Now, it seems obvious in that type of context, but that's the thing we see a lot today. We have people who want to do the will of God. They want to know what God's will is for the life, but they have somehow, for some reason, cut out the source of how you can do that, the scriptures. You know, I was... I don't know where I read it or heard it from R.C. Sproul when he was converted in college. The moment after his conversion, in two weeks, he had the whole Bible read. Two weeks. Brand new convert. Whole Bible read. Two weeks. And we go, that is nuts. That is nuts. And we try to get our, our people to read the whole Bible in a year. Well, you should be reading the whole Bible in a year. And that's actually very, very, very easy. It's really only about 10 minutes of reading a day and you'll get the whole Bible read in a year. But we think that reading the whole Bible in two weeks is crazy. But what is a honeymoon? Isn't a honeymoon two weeks of spending every waking moment with this new spouse of yours who you are madly in love with? So if we have this this new relationship with God and we love him and we've been changed by the gospel. I don't think it's too odd that somebody like R.C. Sproul would want to spend every waking moment for the first two weeks of this new relationship getting to know him. And how did he do that? By reading the Bible. I think we should really think about that. So boiled down, God's will for your life is that your relationship with him would grow in intimacy and love by putting off sinful behavior through the word of God. And now we'll move into verse 11 and we'll see the third pillar to God's will for your life. And that is that God's will is that you be empowered. 
Look with me at the text again. Now we are in verse 11. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So this strengthening, this empowering, where does it come from? It comes from God's glorious might. It comes from his character, his nature. He is a glorious God. He is weighty. He has this infinite power. And we have God living in us, the Holy Spirit. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have this power. So we are to be strengthened with this power from the Holy Spirit. But the immediate question should be, for what? Why is it God's will that we be empowered? Why is, it God's, is, why is it God's will that we be strengthened? For what? Well, if we look at our text, it tells us. For all endurance and patience with joy. So certainly we know that we are empowered by the Spirit for really every Christian good work, especially evangelism and preaching. I mean, we see that right in the Great Commission and Acts. We see that they were empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses. But the context here is a little bit different. We're being empowered to endure and be patient with joy. So really what the context is telling us is that what Paul has in mind is that we are be, to be strengthened for trials and suffering. Now that obviously means then that God's will for your life is that you suffer. Is that you suffer. Now, endurance and patience, they're very related terms. Why did Paul decide to use both of them? They're almost synonymous. But the difference becomes or comes from the source of the trial, the source of the suffering. Listen to this. We endure hard circumstances, but we are patient with hard people. We endure hard circumstances, maybe a disease, cancer, death of a loved one, imprisonment. But we are patient with hard people, maybe an angry or nagging spouse, maybe an unjust employer, maybe disrespectful children, maybe an antagonist, antagonistic person at church. So it's probably why Paul sought to use both words. We endure hard circumstances. We are patient with hard people. Both are a form of suffering. And God's will for our life is that we suffer. But not only suffer, but suffer with joy. We are being empowered. It's God's will that we be empowered to endure and be patient in suffering with joy. With joy. That is key. You go through the scriptures and you see rejoice in your suffering, rejoice in your suffering. Indeed, we are to pursue suffering. We are to pursue it. Christ pursued suffering. He willingly suffered. He willingly humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and lived a life of suffering. Think, listen to what James says in James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's very interesting. The way that James phrases that is kind of consistent with how Paul phrases in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when he's talking about the word of God. Similar, complete, lacking in nothing, complete, equipped for every good work. 
So the word of God makes us complete, equipped for every good work. But now suffering also makes us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's incredible. What do you need in your life? You need the Bible and you need suffering. That's a hard message today. Now, if we were to continue in chapter one of Colossians, we would come to verse 24. And if, you want, if you're in your Bible right now, just look down at verse 24 and just see what it says. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I'll stop there. Now, this is very, very, very interesting wording. What Paul really is saying, I'll boil it down, is that you are to pursue suffering. You are to pursue suffering. That is God's will for your life. Be empowered, pursue suffering with joy and rejoice in it. And if we look at the life of Christ again, his whole life, his whole life was oriented towards where? The cross. His whole life was oriented to pain and suffering and shame. The Roman cross was the most shameful way to die. Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. It was that shameful. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And Christ's whole life, before the foundations of the world, this was the plan that his life be oriented towards suffering and pain. He pursued it willingly with joy. And that is God's will for our life. We should spend a whole sermon just talking about that. But I just want to ask you a couple questions. Is your life oriented towards suffering? Are you pursuing it with joy? Are you joyful in your suffering? And I think just thinking about how you responded during the coronavirus is a great test to see. Does the world look at Christians and do they see people who are oriented towards suffering or are fleeing it and running away from it and worried about it? We are to live life in such a way that it would be a foolish life if it wasn't for the resurrection. If we aren't resurrected, our lives should be foolish and shameful, not making any sense whatsoever. And I see many Christians in America right now living just like the world when it came to the coronavirus, terrified, not pursuing suffering, That brings us to our fourth and final pillar of God's will for your life. And that is God's will is that you be thankful. God's will is that you be thankful. Look with me at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now remember, two weeks ago, a few verses earlier in verse 5, we saw how this gospel message, uh, it, it tells us about this hope laid up for us in heaven. If you remember, this, this hope laid up for us in heaven really is the totality of blessing that comes through Christ and in Christ. And it's laid up for us in heaven. It's waiting for us right now. It's in existence. And I said, it's like the presents under the Christmas tree. There they are, wrapped up, but... Oh man, I got to wait till Christmas to rip them open. So we have this hope laid up for us in heaven and we wait till we die and Christ returns and we are glorified to get this hope laid up for heaven, this inheritance. 
We have a guarantee of this inheritance. And what does Paul say in our text? In verse 12, he says that we must be thankful for this inheritance. Thankful that we have this hope laid up for us in heaven. Thankful that we have all the blessings in Christ Jesus waiting for us. Now, why are we to be thankful? Well, because we did not earn it or merit it or do any work whatsoever to get this inheritance. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's why we are to be grateful. Our whole life should be that of thankfulness. Everything that we have is a gift. Even the things that we have on earth is a gift. Everything. Everything. And that is the, the last thing I see in the Christian church in America right now is thankfulness. God's will for your life is that you be thankful. Why? As our text says, because God qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Now, how did he do this? So as we close, we will look at the rest of our text to see how did he do this? How did he qualify us? Well, look with me. Verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the text tells us he qualified us by delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Our inheritance, our salvation, it comes from the reality that Christ took our sin on his shoulders and faced the infinite wrath of a holy just God in our place. So we were delivered from the domain of darkness. We were delivered from the wrath of God. We were delivered from our own blindness and deadness and sin. We once were in this domain of darkness, living life, dead, not seeing anything, having a veil over our face. But Christ delivered us from that. How? By being our substitute. Like I said, by willingly, with joy, pursuing a life of suffering that brought him to the cross, where on that cross, our sins were put on his shoulders and the holy wrath of God the Father was poured out on him in our place. Delivered us from the domain of darkness. And then, what did he say? Then he says, and then he transferred us. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So now when we hear this gospel message, as we went through a couple weeks ago, this content that we hear, learn, and that we pray, we understand through regeneration, when we hear it, and the Holy Spirit makes it an effectual word and changes our heart and makes us alive, he gives us the gift of faith. And like I said, through faith, you can think of it as an avenue or a channel. Through faith, righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is merited, is given to us, I mean, is accredited to us. The righteousness that Christ merited in his life on earth before he went to the cross. We are given this righteousness and we are declared legally righteous before a holy, just God. And thus we are transferred into this kingdom of Christ. We are adopted into this family. 
We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into his kingdom through faith by being clothed with Christ's righteousness. Now the question is, have you trusted in Christ through faith? Have you heard this gospel message and has, have you been convicted of your sin? Have you seen that you stand guilty before a holy God and that there is no way that you can escape this punishment that you deserve, hell and wrath? Do you feel this conviction, this weight, that you have lived your life for your own gain and not for the glory of God? That your thoughts have been impure, that your desires have been impure, that your actions have been impure and not according to God's law. Are you convicted of that? And now do you see Christ and his work on the cross as the most amazing news ever? And do you now feel this affection towards him, this love for him, this longing for him? You want him. You need him. Do you feel that love? And are you so stirred that you will repent of your sin, turn away from that life of wickedness, turn to Christ, and call upon him for salvation? Repent and believe, and you will be saved. If you have not done that, you can do it now. That is the gospel. That is being transferred from the domain of darkness to this delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into this kingdom of Christ. So, again, in conclusion, we know that God has revealed himself personally through the Bible. We must strive to know it. It is the foundation for how we are able to do the will of God in our life. If you want to do God's will, you can't do it apart from this book. You just cannot. We must crave it. We must know it. We must study it. We must long for it. We must meditate on it day and night. We must store it up in our hearts so that it's there. The sword is always there for us when we need it. And again, on this foundation of knowing God's will, which is revealed through the Bible, we are now able to glorify God through these four pillars bearing fruit in good works, increasing in the knowledge of God, being empowered for joy and suffering, giving thanks for our inheritance in heaven. That is God's will for your life. These are the things you must pursue. And these are the things that we must pray for in others, as Paul did for the Colossians. Let's pray right now. Dear Lord, Lord, we... we, we want to be thankful, as Paul says, to be thankful, Lord. We want to be thankful for, one, that you have saved us, Lord. That we were dead in our sins, Lord, totally blind. But you have saved us by your rich mercy and love, Lord. And you have regenerated our hearts by your will alone. Lord, that is good news. And we have this hope in heaven, Lord. We can live this life boldly. We can live this life in a way where the people of the world look at our lives and they see something that just seems foolish to them. But how are they doing that, Lord? And would it be an avenue, Lord, for us to share the rich mercy of you, Lord, in the gospel? Lord, we pray that you continue to instill in us a deep love for the word of God. 
Lord, would that be our prayer for ourselves and would it be our prayer for others, Lord, that they would love the word of God. Love it, Lord, with all that they have. And be like the psalmist in Psalm 119, Lord, saying how much they love your law, Lord. God, I pray that as we think about what God's will is for our lives, Lord, that we would always be grounded in the text. And we live, Lord, according to your revealed will. In your name, amen.